Hey everyone, welcome back to Tier Apologetics. Super pumped to join us today to have Dr. James Anderson. He's a professor of theology and philosophy at Reformed Theological Seminary. Um, today we're going to be talking about the Lord of Non-Contradiction, a really clever paper title. Um, James, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Well, I'm super excited for this conversation, um, looking at like the laws of logic and like how you're going to kind of build into that, like a case for like theism. So to get things started, James, do you want to talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do and things like that? Yeah, sure. So uh, as you said, I'm a professor of theology and philosophy at uh, a seminary, Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. Um, I've been here for uh, nearly 14 years. Um specializing mainly in, in, in apologetics and some philosophy of religion stuff and came here from uh, the UK, uh, but very, very settled and happy to be living here now. Well, that's super cool, James. And maybe do you want to give like a brief, like little sketch, like what is all, what's going on here in this paper and like what, what's the Lord of Non-Contradiction all about? Right. So the, the title, as you say, is uh, the Lord of Non-Contradiction, which is just a kind of trivial play on words, the law of non-contradiction. But the, the point of the article, which I should say is, uh, is co-authored um, with Greg Welty. Greg is a um, professor of uh, philosophy at uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, a, a good friend, and uh, we, we've done work together in the past. And so I, I need to give him credit because uh, a lot of the um, material in that paper is actually based on his uh, doctoral work. Um, which uh, I could say more about, but uh, that's just back by way of background. So the, the thrust of this paper is to, is to argue from the laws of logic themselves to the existence of God. So rather than just uh, making an argument that uses the laws of logic, of course, all arguments use laws of logic. But here the idea is to, to focus on the laws of logic themselves, to ask questions about what, what kind of things must they be, and from that to infer that if there are laws of logic, and if they really are as we take them to be, uh, then there must be a God uh, who grounds those laws of logic. Mm. Well, let's start off, James, just like looking at the question of like, what are the laws of logic that you're talking about here? Right. So in general, laws of logic, just to, to put it simply, um, are, are rules of inference or, or principles of reasoning. Um, they're, they're rules that distinguish good reasoning from bad reasoning. So we say that, you know, if you're making an argument, you've got to follow the laws of logic. And, uh, and, and there, are, there are certain laws of logic that have been classically recognized, going back to Aristotle and uh, the ancient Greeks in general. Uh, Aristotle didn't invent them. You can't invent the laws of logic. You can only discover or identify them. And uh, so some of the classic examples would be the law of non-contradiction, which says that no, no proposition can be both true and false at the same time and in the same sense. And there are other classic laws of logic. Um, so this paper doesn't really focus on any particular law of logic, but um, just sort of starts from the idea that there are, there have to be some, some laws of logic. Um, so in general terms, I think most of us have a good grasp of what, what we mean by the laws of logic. But for the, purposes of, the uh, purposes of the argument, we need to be a little more precise about what kind of things the laws of logic are. And what we say in this paper is that uh, laws of logic are, are a special category of, of propositions. So a proposition, by definition, is something that can be true or false. Anything that can be true or false, that can bear a truth value, uh, we would call that a proposition or, or propositional in nature. 
and uh, any of the laws of logic can be expressed as propositions or in a propositional form. For example, uh, the law of non-contradiction can be expressed as the proposition that uh, no, no uh, assertion and its negation can be true. Uh, an assertion uh, and its negation can both be true at the same time. So you can state the laws of logic as a sort of statements, propositional statements or assertions in that sense. And so, so that's the starting point to recognize that the laws of logic are um, true propositions, propositions that, that we take to be true and to express these, these rules of reasoning. Mm. So the laws of logic then, if I'm understanding you, James, are kind of like these propositions that you're talking about that are like true and false, like that could be true or false. Like if we're saying that like, maybe like we're recording a podcast here at like 4.02 PM Eastern time on this day, like that's a true proposition. And that's kind of like what the laws of logic are. Yeah. So of course there are all kinds of different propositions. There's propositions about what you and I are doing now. There's propositions about uh, moral claims. Um, and the laws of logic are, are propositions in the sense that they are true um, but they're a special kind of proposition, and maybe that's where we'll go next. You know, that the, the proposition that uh, no statement can be both true and false isn't quite like the proposition that you and I are doing a podcast at this particular time, this particular you know day. Mm -hmm. So, what does it mean then for like for us to say that like, the laws of logic are like you talk about them being truths about truths? Right. So we've already said that the, the laws of logic are truths. That is, they are true propositions. That's just what a truth is. It's a proposition that's true. And um, uh, all propositions are about something or other. Right. So if you if you express a proposition, then that proposition is about something. So take a, a simple example. Uh, if we had the proposition that, that Paris is uh, beautiful in the spring, that's a proposition about Paris. That's that's the thing that it's about. And uh, the laws of logic are about certain things as well. Uh, they are about truths. They are about um, uh, true propositions and how true propositions relate to one another. So when we say that the laws of logic are truths about truths, so first we recognize that they are truths, and secondly, we recognize that they are truths about truths. What we mean is just that the laws of logic are themselves true propositions, but they are also about true propositions. Specifically, they're about they are they are propositions about the relationships between true propositions. What what truths follow from other truths and, and that sort of thing. Mm. Okay, yeah, that, that's super helpful. That we're looking at like um, we're looking at like truths in the world, like certain like things, like we look at, like certain situations almost. And the laws of logic are like the truths about like those given like situations, and those are the propositions that are like kind of doing the work here. Yeah, that's in a sense, they're sort of second level truths. So we've got first level truths like uh, you and I are doing a podcast. And then there's a second level truth about that truth, which is something like um, uh, the, the, the proposition that you and I are doing this podcast can't be both true and false. Right. That would be the, the law of non-contradiction. So so we're sort of kicking it up a level with the laws of logic and thinking about propositions themselves and how true propositions relate to other true propositions. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, thanks for that, James. I think that's super helpful in kind of laying this out. So the next question I think then is like, if we say like we have these laws of logic, um, which are like these propositions that can be like true or false, then like, then comes the question, like, are they necessary? 
Um, and obviously you can say they aren't necessary. Like why think that they would be necessary? So yeah, what do we think? Yeah, but that's the next step in the argument. So once you recognize that the, the, the propositions or, or rather laws of logic are propositions about true propositions, the, the next uh, sort of interesting question you can ask is, is um, are they necessary truths? Um, that is, are they, are they truths that could not have been false. That's what a necessary truth is. A necessary truth is a proposition that not only is true, but had to be true, um, could, could not have been false. Or uh, as philosophers sometimes put it, it's a proposition that's true in every possible world. If something's true in every possible world, then it's, um, uh, it's a necessary truth. Uh, and you know, we, we, we sort of intuitively can tell by thinking about a proposition whether it's necessary or not. So take the proposition, uh, James Anderson exists, all right? That, that's true. Hello, I'm right here. So, <laughs> so we know that's a true proposition, but it, it didn't have to be true because there's, you know, there's a possible world, there are many possible worlds in which I don't exist because my parents never met or something like that. You know, my, my existence is, is contingent. So the proposition that James Anderson exists um, is not a necessary truth, but there are necessary truths. For example, certain mathematical truths like um, you know, two plus two equals four. Um, that's not just happens to be true. Um, that's got to be true in every possible world. Two plus two equals four. At least most people would recognize that. Um, and the laws of logic fall into that same category as well. So the laws of logic are not just uh, contingent truths. Yeah, they're, they're true. They're true in this world, but they might have been different. Um, Take the law of non-contradiction. You know, if if no contradiction can be true, if no proposition can be uh, true and false, um, that's a necessary truth. Uh, there's no possible world in which uh, a contradiction is true if the law of non-contradiction uh, is as we as we take it to be. So, uh, the laws of logic uh, are pretty much widely recognised um, to be necessary truths, and in fact. Some of the laws of logic have to be necessary truths if there are to be such things as as what we call deductively valid argument. So a deductively valid argument is one where the conclusion necessarily follows from the premise. So the premises are true. The conclusion could not fail to be true. So if if uh, there are deductively valid uh, arguments where the conclusion necessarily follows from the premises, then there have to be rules that are necessarily true to guarantee the necessity of the conclusion. So, um, so the laws of logic are necessary truths. Now, that's that's actually not a very controversial claim. What is more controversial, however, is is the next step in the argument, um, which is that the laws of logic necessarily exist. Not just that they are necessarily true, but that they they are necessarily existent things. And um, that's more controversial, partly because um, the idea that the laws of logic exist at all, um, you, you've got to sort of make a bit of an argument for that. And we can we can sort of get onto that um, in, uh, later in our conversation. But um, if if the laws of logic are existent things, if the laws of logic exist at all, then they would exist in every possible world. And one way to see this is by recognizing that if the laws of logic are true, in every possible world, then they must exist in every possible world because something can only exist, or sorry, something can only be true if it exists, right? Um, uh, laws, uh, any, any proposition can only be true, can only bear the property of truth if it exists, right? A proposition that doesn't exist can't be, can't be true or false. So if, if in every possible world, 
the laws of logic are true, they have that property of truth, then they must exist in every possible world, which is just to say that they exist uh, necessarily. Um, so uh, again, the, 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 there are people who would dispute that. There are some people who say laws of logic don't exist at all. Um, they're not real things. Um, some might try and argue that laws of logic exist, but they're, they're contingent things. They're basically human thoughts or in some way grounded in, in human thoughts. Um, but I think there's a pretty strong argument that uh, once you recognize the necessary truth of these laws, um, th that uh, if they exist, then they have to exist necessarily. They're just not the sort of things that would exist uh, contingently. Hmm. So if I'm like trying to understand you right, when looking at like the question of um, like why I think the laws of logic are necessary, one of the things you're saying that like is like if they're true, they have to be true in all possible worlds. And if they're true in all possible worlds, then they're going to have to be like necessary. It's like, for example, like uh, if we come up with an example, or maybe you come up with an example of like kind of fleshing that out because I can't come up, come up with anything right off the top of my head. Well, okay. I mean, let's take, let's take the law of non-contradiction. So the law of non-contradiction we say is, is, is true and necessarily true. So in, in every possible world, so a possible world is just a way things could have been, right? So a, a possible world, uh, there's a possible world where uh, I don't exist. There's a, a possible world where, you know, the Nazis won the Second World War. Any, anything that we think is possible, uh, that think that could have been otherwise, could have been differently than it is, um, we would say that's that's a possible world or part of a possible world. So across possible worlds, things are different, but some things have to be the same, like the laws of logic, right? Uh, as well as mathematical truths and other necessary truths. So no matter uh, how things could have been otherwise, the laws of logic would still have been true. And my argument is that uh, anything that, that is true has to exist. A non-existent thing can't be true or anything else, right? So if there are truths, then uh, they must um, they must exist. And if there are necessary truths, then they must necessarily exist. Hmm. Okay, so that's super helpful. Um, like, what would be like, be like your favorite argument, like for the existence of the laws of logic? Like, is it something along the lines that you're bringing forward here, James? Yeah, yeah it's going to be pretty important uh, for the overall argument to to make a, an argument for the existence of the laws of logic specifically and the existence of propositions in general. And actually, there are there are a number of different arguments that have been put forward for the existence of propositions, that is, things that can be true or false, um, typically understood to be abstract entities that, that can be true or false. Um, I, as far as favorite arguments go, um, I, I think I'll mention, I'll mention two that I think uh, are quite useful, maybe for sort of uh, starting a conversation. Um, one is just what we call the argument from ordinary language, right? Um, and uh, it goes like this, uh, all else being equal, the statement, there are X's implies the existence of X, right? So if someone makes us makes a statement with the form in English, there are such and such, um, that on the face of it implies that such and such exists. I mean, that's just normally what we mean by there are such and such. Um, and uh, we want to say there are laws of logic, right? I mean, if someone says, are there laws of logic? Your answer is going to be yes, there are laws of logic and we, we have to follow them. And that's how we construct arguments and so forth. So um, if we believe that the, the statement there are laws of logic is true, then at least we have a prima facie reason, 
maybe, maybe not an absolutely knockdown argument. We've got what we call a, a, a prima facie on the face of it, um, reason to think that uh, the laws of logic exist. And at that point, really, it's, it's um, over to the person who doubts the existence of the laws of logic to explain why, in that case, we shouldn't infer that laws of logic exist. What, why, what good reasons do we actually have for thinking that when we say there are laws of logic, that actually doesn't imply the existence of the laws of logic? So, so mm. the, 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 um, uh, the burden of argument uh, shifts at that point. But that's, that's sort of an opening argument. Um, another interesting argument is what I call the, the argument from the uh, ontological preconditions of arguments. Uh, I'll say that again, the argument from the ontological preconditions of arguments. What that, what that means is that the existence of arguments implies that certain kinds of things must exist. So an ontological precondition is uh, something, some kind of thing must exist in order for there to be something else. And um, in this case, um, we're thinking about arguments themselves. So a, an argument is constructed out of proposition. So if you, if you make an argument for something, you're going to have certain premises, and the premises are going to be propositions, and you're going to have a conclusion. Uh, and uh, the conclusion itself is going to be a proposition of some kind. And you want your premises to be true, and you want your conclusion to follow from your premises so that your conclusion is true as well, or at least probably true. So what, what that means is that arguments have uh, propositions as necessary constituents. Okay? There's, they're the sort of things that make up arguments. Arguments are made up out of propositions. What that means then is that if there are no propositions, then there are no arguments. And if there are no laws of logic, then there are no arguments because arguments uh, depend on there being certain rules of, of logic. Um, and what that means conversely is that if there are arguments, then there have to be propositions to make up those arguments and there have to be laws of logic. Um, so if you think that there are such things as arguments, then you ought to think that there are such things as propositions and laws of logic as well. And uh, what that means somewhat ironically is that if someone makes an argument against the laws of logic, then the laws of logic exist because there couldn't be an argument against the laws of logic unless there were laws of logic that, that were part of that argument or that, that were constituents of that argument. So it's actually a kind of a, a transcendental argument um, for uh, the laws of logic that you, you can only argue against the laws of logic if the laws of logic are real things that are mm. constituents or, or uh, the framework in some sense of, of the argument that's being made. Mm. I, like how you're, I know it's a little, yeah. it's a little tricky. <laughs> um, I think I'm tracking with you. So I think it's interesting to think about the idea that the existence of arguments um, just kind of like showed that the laws of logic exist. And it's a cool little thing if it works, or not a little thing, but it's just a cool thing if it works because you're saying, hey, like all these arguments you want to make about things, well, they all depend on all these laws of logic um, and they must exist if we're going to have these arguments. Um, yeah. So what exactly like say like if someone's going to say like there are no laws of logic, why would arguments not work then? Well, if you if you can't if you say that there are no laws of logic, then uh, then there, uh, an argument um, 
an argument couldn't be constructed, uh, at least a good argument couldn't be constructed, because the laws of logic are what, what distinguish good arguments from, from bad arguments. So um, maybe you could say, oh, there are arguments in the sense of, uh, you know, disagreements. We could have disagreements with people, we could have disputes, you know, arguments in that sense. But if you're talking about um, a reasoned argument or literally a logical argument, if there is a logical argument, then there have to be laws of logic that um, that uh, that argument uh, follows or, or um, adheres to. Um, and there have to be propositions, there have to be premises, there have to be conclusions. So it's not just the laws of logic, even the premises and the conclusions of an argument are themselves propositions. So the more general problem is that if someone denies that propositions are real things, then they're really committed to saying that arguments aren't real things either. So you you know you've got yourself into a bit of a tricky situation there because you're wanting to argue against the existence of propositions when arguments themselves depend on the existence of propositions. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is helpful, James. Um, looking at this point, we've like kind of like tried to establish that there are these laws of logic, these propositions that kind of um, exist and are about certain things. Um, now, why I think the laws of logic are going to be thoughts? Because that's the super important part to your argument. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let, before I get to that point, it's, it's worth sort of uh, making a, a sort of preliminary point that one thing the laws of logic can't be are material things, physical things. And that's pre precisely because, as we've argued, if, if, if laws of logic exist, then they exist necessarily. They exist in every um, every possible world. But but physical things, material things are always contingent. So any any material thing that you point to, whether it's uh, a sentence on a piece of paper or uh, a neuron in your brain or whatever, um, that didn't have to exist. That doesn't necessarily exist. Um, so uh, the laws of logic can't be reduced to material or physical things because, because those things are contingent. They don't exist in every possible world. Um, but then the, the more significant step is to say, uh, or to ask, uh, well, what kind of things are they? If they're not physical or material things, uh, what kind of things are they? And uh, what we argue in the paper is that they're best understood to be thoughts, that is mental things, um, things that uh, exist within a, within a mind, so, such as thoughts or ideas. And, you know, this is, of all the steps in the argument, this is probably the most controversial one or the one that requires um, the most most argument to persuade people. But I, I think it's a solid step. I think it's very defensible. Um, but here's the basic argument. So propositions have a very distinctive feature that is technically known as intentionality. Intentionality is uh, what what's more um, to put it in easier language, um, is aboutness. So we talked earlier about how propositions are about certain things. The proposition that Paris is beautiful in the spring, that's about Paris. That, that aboutness of propositions, that feature that they have, is, um, is technically known as intentionality. And propositions are what we call uh, intrinsically intentional. That is, they're, they're not intention, they don't have intentionality because they get it from something else, but they, their intentionality is intrinsic to them. It's an intrinsic feature of them. It's, it's sort of what makes them uh, propositions, make, it gives them the power to represent the world uh, to, and, and to refer to things in the world. And this, this remarkable feature of intentionality uh, has, a, has a couple of different uh, sort of dimensions to it. One is what we call directedness. Uh, so a proposition 
can be directed towards something um, like the proposition that Paris is beautiful in the spring, that's directed towards Paris or, or sort of refers. It's, it's directed to something beyond itself, outside of itself, we might say. And another aspect of intentionality is what has been called aspectual shape, which is just a way of saying that propositions can represent things in different ways. You can, you can refer to one thing, but you can represent it in different ways as you refer to it. So just to give you an example, um, consider the proposition, um, uh, the president of the United States is 80 years old. And then another proposition, Joe Biden is 80 years old, okay? So they've got two propositions and they actually both refer to the same thing or in this case, the same person. Uh, so the president of the United States, Joe Biden. Okay, they're both, they're both referring to the same thing. That's the directedness of the proposition. But those propositions don't exactly have the same meaning because president of the United States doesn't mean exactly the same thing as Joe Biden. And in fact, uh, the president of the United States, that, that way of referring could refer to someone else, and it has done at different points in time, uh, whereas Joe Biden refers to a particular person using, using, using a name. So you've got two propositions that, that are both directed towards the same referent, um, but they, they, they refer in different ways. They represent that object in different ways, one with a description, one with a name. And this is just you know, a, 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 an interesting aspect of, um, of propositions, that they have this uh, remarkable feature of intentionality. Now, what does this have to do with thoughts? Well, here's the thing. Uh, intrinsic intentionality is the distinctive mark of a thought or a mental entity, because minds and thoughts within those minds can be directed towards things, or they can be directed to things beyond themselves. I mean, that, that's one of the amazing things about a mind is I can direct my mind to one thing. I can, I can direct a thought towards one kind of thing. I can direct a thought towards another kind of thing. So minds have this remarkable feature uh, or power to refer, to di be directed and to, to have thoughts that are directed towards uh, things beyond themselves. And uh, minds also have this feature of representing things in different ways. So I can I can think about a certain thing in one way or with one aspectual shape, and I can think about or refer to um, a thing in another way. I can sort of shift my perspective uh, uh, on things. Um, and uh, physical things can't do that. Uh, physical entities do not have intrinsic intentionality. Um, physical things can have intentionality, like a, like a sentence on a page. If I write a sentence on a piece of paper, that can have intentionality, but it only has it derivatively. It only has it because there was a mind that, that brought it about. There's a mind that gives meaning to those physical symbols on a page. So no physical thing has this intrinsic intentionality, but we know that mental entities do because we, we know our own minds, we know our thoughts. We can, we can actually, and this is another remarkable thing, we can think about our own thoughts. We can reflect on our own thoughts and see that they have this property of, int of intrinsic intentionality. Um, and those are the only things in our, in our experience that have that. Of all the things that we uh, uncontroversially accept the existence of, physical things and mental things, it's only the mental things that have this uh, intrinsic intentionality. And so the argument is that um, based on the things that we already accept as, as existing, 
Um, propositions best fit into that category of mental entities. They best fit into that category, category of thoughts. Propositions are basically thoughts because of their um, intrinsic intentionality. And if propositions in general are thoughts, then the laws of logic, if they are propositions, are also going to be uh, thoughts. Um, so that's that's the argument. Uh, reflecting on the nature of propositions, seeing that they have this distinctive feature that we ascribe to mental entities, and then uh, inferring that propositions uh, must be must be thoughts. And the interesting thing is that there are um, there are actually non-theist philosophers who agree that propositions are thoughts, but mm. they want to make them human thoughts, right? Um, because they, on the one hand, they recognize that um, that propositions do have this uh, uh, property of intentionality, uh, and that is what we associate with ment mental entities or thoughts. So they want to say, yeah, propositions are sort of conceptual in nature, that they are thoughts in nature, but in their view, the only thoughts that you know are worth considering are, are human thoughts. So they want to try and make propositions somehow uh, reducible to human thoughts, but they're actually some very good reasons for for not doing that or thinking that's um, that's not going to be a good account of propositions. Um, but th the point is that you don't have to be a, a theist to recognize that propositions are conceptual or mental in nature. Hmm. Well, I think that's helpful, James. So the big idea here is looking at the idea that like um, like these propositions have like intrinsic like intentionality. Like in the same way, if I, I can direct my mind towards maybe like. Um, like the air conditioner in front of me or the lamp or the you um, or it's like whatever else is going on. These propositions have a similar kind of like idea behind them. Like if I'm looking at like, um, like the proposition, like I'm looking at you, like there's a proposition that I'm looking at James Anderson right now um, through my computer. And that's a true proposition because I am. Um, and that proposition has like a similar like uh, structure to like, uh, like, like our thoughts. Is that what you're trying to get at? Yeah, well, uh, our thoughts are obviously propositional in in nature. So when when we have a thought, or at least when we have a thought that can be true or false. So if you have the thought, I'm having a conversation with James Anderson right now, and that's that's a true thought, uh, then we would say that that has propositional content, right? Um, the problem is though, we don't want to identify propositions with our thoughts. We don't want to say that uh, the propositions just are our thoughts, and there are a number of reasons for that. Um, one is that we can actually uh, share the proposition. Okay, so you and I, you and I can have um, the same thought in that it has the same propositional content. So suppose suppose that both of us uh, have the thought that um, two plus two equals four. Right? We we have the same we have the same thought in the sense that we're thinking about the same proposition. But clearly, my thought is not ontologically identical to your thought because. We have different minds, right? Uh, if I have different minds, then my, my thoughts are in my mind, your thoughts are in your, your mind, um, but yet there's something shared between those thoughts uh, that allows us to say they're the same thought or we're, we're having the same thought. Um, but that what we mean there is we're, we're thinking the same proposition. We, we have a thought with the same propositional content, which implies that the proposition has to be something different than your thought and my thought, right? Because when, when we're counting thoughts, there's two. There's your thought and there's my thought, that two plus two equals four. But there's one proposition, 
that we are shared uh, thinking about in the, uh, at the same time. And that is the proposition that two plus two equals four. So that's one reason, the fact that, that, that in a sense, propositions are shared and are independent of individual human minds. Uh, but there are some other reasons such as um, arguably there are an infinite number of propositions, right? I mean, if you think about uh, numbers, so think about mathematics. So for, for every number, there's a, a proposition about whether that number is true, um, is uh, odd or even, right? If we're thinking about natural numbers. So for every every number, there's uh, the proposition that that number is uh, even or the proposition that number is odd. But how many numbers are there? Well, even the natural numbers, there's there's an infinite number of them. There's, there's no end to the natural numbers. So um, if there are an infinite number of propositions, and they can't be in my mind, they can't be in your mind, because uh, my mind just doesn't have the capacity for that. I, I have a finite mind. Uh, I can only entertain a finite number of propositions. So uh, when you think about the number of propositions there must be, the number of truths there must be, of course, there are truths that no human has ever discovered. There are truths that no human mind has ever entertained. Um, so these truths, these true propositions must be something independent of human minds. And then we've got, we've got the necessary existence argument as well. If propositions, at least some propositions, are necessary truths and exist necessarily, then they can't be identical to um, human thoughts because no, no human thoughts exist necessarily. They're always uh, contingent. Hmm. Okay. So one thing you said that really stuck out to me, James, is like thinking about propositions is them like them being shared. Um, it's like what I was saying, like, hey, like why can't propositions just be something like our minds come up with? And you're saying like, hey, like we can like humans can share like the same proposition and like grasp that same proposition as a reason to think that like they're like they are like independent of like human beings. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is what um, Greg Welty in, in his work on this, and he's done some superb work on uh, defending what, what he calls um, theistic conceptual realism, which is basically uh, the view that we defended this paper that um, the propositions are divine thoughts. But he, he, he argues that one of the features of propositions is uh, objectivity, right? Uh, objectivity means that propositions are what they are independent of any human thought. So a proposition, there are, I mean, to put it crudely, propositions are out there to be discovered, not out there in the sense that physical things are, of course, the propositions aren't physical things, but they're, they're objective in that they, they don't depend on any particular human mind. They're not subjective mm -hmm. things like my, my feelings, my sensations. Uh, the proposition that two plus two equals four um, is an objective truth, right? It doesn't it doesn't depend on me. It doesn't depend on you. If I had never thought of it, it would still be true. Um, and that's just a simple proposition. Of course, there are some super duper complex, uh, complicated propositions that only some very very brilliant people are able to entertain. And even they had to, you know, develop, you know, uh, mature in their intelligence before they could actually grasp it. So there are there are many of these um, truths that we, we recognize they are what they are, but they don't depend on us. They don't depend on any particular human mind or even collectively on, on human minds. Well, that's super helpful. So thanks for that, James. So like we've talked about the laws of logic and like thinking why they exist and why they're thoughts. So like why think that they're like divine thoughts? Like how is this going to build into an argument for God's existence? Yeah, well, we're, we're pretty much there in, in what we've covered already because we've argued that um, laws of logic 
are are true propositions about true propositions uh, that they um, they can't be physical. Uh, they exist necessarily, at least some of them, uh, at least some of them do, the ones that are necessarily true. Uh, I actually think all propositions exist necessarily, but for the purposes of the argument, we only have to say that some propositions exist necessarily, and the laws of logic would be among them. And, that, and now we've uh, added that um, propositions are also mental entities. So you put that together, the laws of logic are necessarily existent mental entities or necessarily existent tr uh, thoughts. Uh, and that means there must be a necessarily existent mind. Um, because once we start saying uh, the laws of logic are thoughts, well, the, the question is, well, who's, whose thoughts are they? Um, they can't be, as we've already seen, they can't be my thoughts. Um, if, uh, if the laws of logic were actually identical to my thoughts, then the laws of logic wouldn't have come into existence until I came into existence, which is absurd. Um, so the laws of logic can't be, can't be human thoughts. They're, they're independent of us. Uh, and in fact, they can't be any the thoughts of any finite contingent mind. They have to be the thoughts of a necessarily existent mind, which is really just to say a divine mind, because the, the only mind that would be um, necessarily existent, the only mind that would exist in every possible world is the mind of uh, a necessary being, namely uh, God. Um, now, that doesn't get you you know, all of the attributes of, of God. But uh, once you've accepted that there's a necessarily existent mind, um, it's kind of hard to say that you're, you, you haven't basically become a theist of some kind <laughs> at that point. Um, I mean, there, I think maybe you could argue or you could be a sort of a pantheist or something, but um, you're certainly not going to be a, a, an out and out atheist. Uh, there are no atheists who think that there are necessarily there is a, a necessarily existent mind. Mm. Okay, well, that's super helpful. So thanks for that, James. So maybe let's look at this then. Um, and that's like, why I think that we like, why bring God into this picture? Like, why can't like you talk about atheists who like may accept the laws of logic and say, like, maybe they're just necessary? Like, why do you think we really need to put God in this picture to like explain the laws of logic? Well, basically, because we've deduced them, uh, we've deduced the existence of God from uh, the existence of the laws of logic. Once um, once we see what kind of things the laws of logic are, they they actually imply the existence of God. So why bring God into the into the picture is basically saying, um, uh, why would we bring a necessary implication of something into the picture? Uh, if if the laws of logic being the kind of things they are, imply the existence of God, then you can't have the laws of logic without having the existence of God. Um, but let me flesh that out a, a little bit more. So someone might say, well, okay, you've argued that the laws of logic are necessary, right? Um, okay, I'll, I'll grant that. Well, if the laws of logic are necessary, then then they just are what they are, whether God exists or not. And maybe that's the argument. If the laws of logic are necessary, maybe the laws of logic could just be there as, 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 some, as a sort of ontological necessity, even if God doesn't exist. Um, the mistake there is in thinking that um, if something exists in every possible world, then it then it isn't ontologically dependent on anything else. That doesn't follow. Just because something exists in every possible world, it doesn't follow that therefore it's ontologically dependent, uh, ontologically independent of anything else. All that follows is that 
if the laws of logic are ontologically dependent on something else, then that other thing must also exist necessarily, must also exist in every possible world. And as we've seen, if the laws of logic really are thoughts, then they have to be ontologically dependent on a mind. It doesn't make any sense to have thoughts without a mind. You can't have thoughts without a mind. That would be like saying you can have, you can have gestures without a body, right? Um, any gesture is, is in the nature of the case, the gesture of some body, some, some uh, physical um, embodiment. Uh, and and uh, thoughts in the nature of the case are always gonna be thoughts of a, of a mind. And so if the laws of logic are necessarily existent thoughts, then they depend on a mind and that has to be a necessarily existent mind. Uh, and that we argue is the, is the mind of God. Well, James, that's super helpful. So thanks for that. I really, yeah, that's really good. Um, I think this is kind of, we covered our bases. Is there anything else you want to say with regards to like this argument or anything like that before we wrap up here? Sure. Um, uh, if, if folk who are watching or listening to this uh, are interested, um, I would encourage them to, to read the full paper. Um, you, can, you can get that on my website, which is www.prognosco.com www.prognosco.com or, or you can you can google for analogical thoughts and that's the name of my website and uh, you'll find it on the papers page there so you can read the full paper and uh, you know that goes into more detail than we've been able to go to here and uh, it's a little more rigorously stated and uh, people can make up their own minds about whether it's a good argument or not there have been some interesting responses to it um, there have been some uh, atheist philosophers uh, like um, Alex Malpass uh, who's written a response to it. And uh, uh, Alex and I actually had a, um, a conversation about it. We were invited um, by um, uh, Parker Setekes on his uh, podcast to have a, you know, a conversation about it. And he has his criticisms and I have my responses. So um, there has been some discussion uh, following the paper and this discussion is ongoing. You know, like any argument, some people think it's a good argument and some people uh, don't think it's a good argument, and you know you just keep thrashing it out, and uh, and 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 you know people will make up their own minds at the end of the day. Um, but I I, I don't think um, I've come across any um, uh, really devastating criticism of it. Every criticism that's been made of the argument, uh, I think there's a good response to. Hmm. Well, James, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I really appreciate um, what you're doing and your work and your willingness to come on here. Um, it's super great and it's amazing what you're doing and you've given me a lot to think about and you can just think like you can sit in bed and just think about like, like your thoughts is like propositions and like, what mm -hmm. does that mean? Um, mm -hmm. and that's something super helpful for me is like, wow, this is something that is like, you can't really escape this argument once you start thinking about it and like how wide its applicability is if you really run it through. So thanks for that. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, and, once you, uh, once you start having thoughts about your own thoughts, you're basically a philosopher, whether you know it or not, because that's what philosophers do. They have thoughts about their own thoughts and, and many other things. <laughs> well, James, so much, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. There'll be a link down below for people to like follow you and your work and whatnot. Um, and that's it guys. This is here apologetics. Really appreciate your support. Um, be sure to subscribe, leave a like all that fun stuff. And if you value what we do, uh, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash apologetics. But James, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been great. I appreciate it. And yeah, God bless. Thanks, Zach. It's been a pleasure. All right. Bye, everyone.